Sonsu. E Domini e Patre e Fili Spirito Sancti. Rock the USA. Welcome back, Renaissance episode 19. And I have some good news, Ray, for everybody yes. listening to this oh, who's been wondering, yes, who's been <sighs> wondering when the fuck are we going to get to the Renaissance? <laughs> I gonna, have an answer gonna, to that question. Yeah, yeah. Episode 22 is when we're going to yeah. get to the fucking renaissance. So, You're about to um, up against it. Yeah. <laughs> three episodes to go, 1920-21. We're going to get we're going to finish in the next three episodes. We're going to finish mm-hmm. the uh, story of how the western empire uh, collapsed, how western civilization ended up in the dark ages. Then we're going to get we're going to jump forward then. 600 years and we're going to get stuck into the renaissance but it's a little bit of a shame because you and i are going to be in florence in a couple of weeks oh florence yeah and then kind of when we planned this trip i thought well by the time we get to florence we'll know everything (laughs) about the renaissance yeah yeah as it turns out we're going to know nothing (laughs) when we get to renaissance get to florence what's that oh uh, that's a library oh okay yeah, Leonardo de what? Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, but Who's I, but this I, David, but, David, David. Sorry, go ahead. It doesn't look like David Markham to me. Uh, you know, where's her pe- arms? Where's his, the statue's arms? That's stupid. His penis is much bigger. David's got arms. What are you talking I'm about? S- no, no, I, I moved over to uh, the statue penis? of the lady. Is it Aphrodite? Yes. Mm. One of those, yeah. Victory, victory, the Statue Vi- victory. of Victory. In, yeah. That's in the yeah. Louvre in Paris, yeah. not in Obviously. Florence. But, well, uh, we're going to be in Paris too, so it's okay. That's one of my favorite statues, actually. And, and like, for people who are listening to this feeling bad that you're not going to be with us on this you trip, it serves you fucking <laughs> right. Uh, why are you not coming with us? Um, anywho. Uh, so last week, in episode 18, we talked about uh, Basil Fawlty of Caesarea, um, mm-hmm. guy who said, you know what, uh, these these pagan authors, they're okay, right. bits and pieces, but you got to pick and choose, don't read the naughty bits. In fact, don't even think about the naughty bits, because if you think about the naughty bits, you are ipso facto naughty. Thinking about naughty makes you naughty. Um, <laughs> and true. I want to continue that theme uh, for a little bit, talking about the the approach of these uh, Christians in this era to the idea of history. Mm-hmm. What is history? How should you write history? How should you think about history? Now, the Greek author Herodotus, the right. father of history, as he is often called, when he sat down to write the first history in in civilization, as far as we know, he declared that what he was trying to do was to make inquiries into the relation between the Greeks and the Persians. And do you know what the word inquiries is in Greek, Ray? Um, I'm going to guess history. I don't know. Yeah, good good guess. Your, your guesses are getting better and better the more we work together. Um <laughs> Historias. He said he was making inquiries, historias, into trying to work out what happened between the Greeks and the Persians. How the fuck did we end up in these wars that seem to go on forever (laughs) and ever? I'm going to make inquiries, historias. Now, 
he he did such a good job when he was writing his histories. He was in in being even handed, looking at both sides relatively fairly, relatively neutrally. Mm-hmm. That he was accused by the Greeks of being a barbarian lover, something Ooh. that I know your wife uh, has accused you of. <laughs> but instead of barbarian, she says goat. Um, same well, thing. Goat sex really, is very barbaric. I mean, <laughs> just saying. So yeah, she's not wrong. Now, Christian historians in the uh, in the sort of fourth, fifth, sixth centuries, seem to have taken a bit of a different view about what history was all about. Our old friend Eusebius, uh, we've, we've quoted many times, particularly around the, he was a contemporary of Constantine the Great. He's mm-hmm. sometimes known as the father of church history because he wrote the first big ecclesiastical history. He wrote that the job of the historian was not to record everything, but only the good bits, bit like Basil of Caesarea said, don't read the naughty bits. Eusebius said, don't even write down the naughty bits. Don't write down the bits that might upset people. We don't want to upset people. We only want the bits that are going to make people happy or that are going to make Christians look good. For example, in his history where he was talking about the persecutions of Diocletian. Mm-hmm. He says he doesn't want to talk about the people who escape the persecutions by renouncing their faith because that just makes everyone look bad. It's a downer. <laughs> yes, it's a downer. <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> can't tell you it won't come true. <laughs> I bet he wished for that new Mustang GT he won. <laughs> uh, he should have he wished for uh, better golf scores. <laughs> oh. <laughs> if I had a wish, I wish that they'd release that poor hostage in Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> That's a better one. What? <laughs> Um, Debbie Downer from Saturday Night Live for those of you who don't uh, go back that far with the old SNL Um, so he he wrote getting back to Eusebius he wrote um, I shall include in my overall account only those things which by first we ourselves then later generations may benefit don't we benefit from the truth the good and the bad of it to know and what the ugly. And the ugly. <laughs> oh, God. I watched a uh, uh, little documentary the other day. Not a documentary. It was like an interview with Clint talking about the making of A Fistful of Dollars and the good, the bad, and the ugly and that kind of stuff for a few dollars more. Right. And it, it was fascinating, man. He was like, yeah, there was, there's no, there's no budget. We had nothing. Uh, it was ridiculous. I never thought it would go anywhere. I thought this is no one's ever going to see these. It's just ridiculous. I can't believe I'm doing this. And uh, <laughs> you know, and you look at those movies today; they hold up so well. Jesus Christ, man! 
So those movies are so great. And the reviews at the time weren't great. The reviews were pretty bad. Uh, A lot of the Mm. reviews were like, this is fucking boring. Nothing's going on. Um, But there you go. Interesting. There's no such thing as a spaghetti western at the time. (laughs) Japanese called them. (laughs) (laughs) Japanese called them macaroni westerns. Um, Sushi westerns. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, they call it macaroni westerns. You wow. know, people, the kids today may not realize, but probably don't even know who Clint Eastwood is. But uh, <laughs> like the westerns that were being made in the sixties, still in the United States, were men, were uh, men. with where, with your with your Dean Martins and and your John Waynes and and yeah. and, and these guys, uh, even even your uh, Steve McQueens. Um, yeah, everyone looked nice. They had freshly, freshly washed and pressed clothes, nice haircuts, <laughs> white clean teeth, sh- white teeth, clean shaven. The sets were clean. The streets yeah. had been sweeped. Everything looked nice. Everything was lovely. They had big budgets. They had big orchestral scores. Dum 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 dum. Yeah, exactly. And then the spaghetti westerns um, came along. And they, and it was just, uh, you know, Sergio Leone just didn't have any money, and everything was dirty. Everyone looked <laughs> dirty. You could always smell them coming off the, uh, coming out of the screen. It's just dirty. Everything was oh, dirty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unshaven. Clint said he uh, had to take his own um, uh, uh, costume, his own wardrobe. It was just his own clothes. He took. Does he- he had cowboy clothes. Interesting. Yeah, well, he jeans. It's just his jeans, jeans and okay. boots. He just brought right. from home his shirt, his hat. <laughs> uh, he said they brought him a. Oh yeah, because he'd made westerns before. He just brought his western wardrobe, right. the poncho. I think they got him a poncho. He said there was only one hat. He said, yeah, normally you make films and you have like four or five sets of your wardrobe in case anything gets damaged or whatever. Right. He said they only had the one. He had to take. He took his wardrobe home with him every night, so nothing could happen to it to look after it. Put it in a hat box. Um, had to, and yeah, and they had to loop all the dialogue afterwards. He said, "No, no one. They weren't. They didn't have the the, the uh, ability to record the audio on set." So he said, oh, he'd, be, "He'd be shooting a scene, and in front of him, behind the camera, he'd see people playing soccer, having barbecues. <laughs> no one was trying to be quiet because they're like, well, it's not going to end up in the film. So who gives a fuck? So he's trying to act. Well, this is going on. And uh, anyway." I don't know how we got onto that. Oh, I yeah. I do um, Something. Spaghetti. Wet, I don't know. Anyway, getting back to, to Eusebius, he only wants uh-huh. to include the good, that's the good, the bad, the ugly. That's like, fuck, <laughs> fucking hell. Uh, he only wants to include the good stuff. Right. Now, so yeah. Herodotus saw history as an inquiry, but Eusebius saw it more, of as, more as a parable. How to be nice, how to be a good Christian was the way he saw history. Which, by the way, is how I think we should read the Gospels. I, I believe the Gospels were written ah, as parables, not as not history. Facts. Right. Um, and that's how we should understand them when we read them. Anyway, but I digress. Yeah. So, uh, that, so do you want to do, do you, do you say something? 
No, j- just that, uh, yeah, um, they're attacking literature, they have their own version, they have their own interpretation, and now that the church is in power, I mean, if you think about it, time is on their side. All they have to do is um, either focus on what they're really focused on, or like you said just a couple of minutes ago, make sure other things aren't recopied or rewritten. Things like that will fade away, time serves them uh, well, and things will just disappear over the decades. So again, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they had a mission. They were on a mission from God. (laughs) (laughs) No, like the death of Hypatia, or Hypatia. You know, it was barely written about. Nobody was punished. Was there a political cover-up? Was there a literary cover-up? Because no one wrote about it, or barely wrote about it. So again... These guys just have an angle, just like every organization has its own agenda. They have theirs too. It doesn't matter that they're supposedly working for your salvation. They have their tools that they're using, and and they're, you know, in some ways trying to justify it by things like this, by saying history is a parable to teach you how to be good, to get closer to Jesus. That's bullshit. It's just a part of the machinery. We're on a mission from God. So, um... We know, Ray, because we've yeah. done a bit of this history stuff over the years, you and me, we know that <clears throat> a lot of the writers of ancient histories mm-hmm. didn't really think about writing history in the same way that we do today. Right. Uh, today we like our histories to be neutral, to be academic, well-researched. They didn't think of it like that. They often wrote propaganda uh and and that's probably what they thought they were doing too they they were they didn't have any idea that history should be anything different despite what Herodotus wrote um we know Plutarch's uh parallel lives uh, and his lives of the Caesars there's a lot of propaganda in there right was that supposed writers- to be moral moral lessons or is that another yeah, moral lessons. Yeah, okay. but all right. but all of these guys, particularly when they start writing after Augustus, um, you, you've got to be careful uh, uh, about what you write because you've got emperors and 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 emperors are a little bit touchy sometimes. <coughs> little some right. of them, you know, they they might debal you just for fun <laughs> if you uh, piss them off. So you got to be careful about what you write, right. and. Um, uh, but the but uh, the, the the interesting thing about Eusebius is he's so open about it. He says, "Yeah, mm. no, I'm not going to write about the bad stuff. Actually, write. Actually, he wrote that down. I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk about all those stories of the people that you know weren't good Christians because right. uh, I don't want to promote that kind of behaviour. Basically, <laughs> you know, it just dawned on me that the church had its own bullshit filter." But for them, the bullshit was literature, medicine, science, and the various schools of philosophy. That Mm -hmm. is what they were purposely, like you were saying earlier, filtering out. It's just their message. God, 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 God. That's all that matters. And how to get to God, how to be a good Christian. Nothing else fucking matters to these people. I I don't know. Sometimes I just get, I'm still astounded by... What the fuck were they thinking? I mean, you kind of need inventions, you kind of need science, you kind of needed technical advances, if just to keep up with other countries. But the the point is, they filtered out. They were purposefully filtering out a lot of things that societies are based upon. Indeed, yeah. as we will see. So, later Christians, I think, uh, uh, took this idea 
that Eusebius wrote about and kind of adopted it as a motto. Mm-hmm. That um, the only stuff we want to talk about, the only stuff we want to keep are the things that uh, uh, agree with Christianity and and display the kind of Christianity that is in vogue at the moment. If someone wrote something that was hostile to Christianity, which people did, mm-hmm. um, we, we know that people like uh, Kelsus wrote... Uh, criticisms, deep criticisms of Christianity. Or even if a Christian wrote something that had ideas in it about Christianity or about Jesus that weren't part of the uh, mainstream, uh, or, or even if they had been part of the mainstream but not, were no longer part of the mainstream views, the accepted views, the orthodox views, those books, or those scrolls weren't recopied mm. or they were actively suppressed. Sometimes, for example, in Alexandria towards the end of the fifth century, a Christian writer named Zachariah of Mytilene right. tells a story about how he entered the house of a man and found the man was sweating and depressed. Ah, uh, post masturbation, right? Exactly. That was the first. I thought, yeah, he's post masturbation. He's been watching donkey <laughs> porn, jerked off, and now he's he's hating himself. He's like, oh, I gotta stop watching donkey porn. That's just, <laughs> I hate myself. My, my arms kill it. I got cramps. Oh. <laughs> That's the fifth time today. That, I'm not watching any more donkey porn today. At I least not for another hour. A different hobby. Or he just had a bad acid trip. Right. Um, <laughs> Seeing little green men coming out of the walls that are telling him the world's about to end. But not Zach. Zachariah didn't come to that conclusion. Zachariah no. instantly came to the conclusion that the man was struggling with demons. Ah. Oh, and he knew why he was struggling with demons. The man must have some scrolls with pagan spells in his house. <laughs> I'm so. That's the first thing he jumps to. That's his logic. That's his thinking. Uh, okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, well, yeah. can't be anything else, right? Demons. Can only be that. Bad books. Demons. Got it. Swe- boom, sweating. Boom. Sweating. <laughs> depression. Demon scrolls. If you want to get rid of that anxiety, he I need told a the man. With that on there. Uh huh. Burn the papers. Oh, here we and go. And so the man. So the man did. He took his scrolls and in front of Zechariah, he set fire to them. Mm-hmm. And then in Zechariah's uh, telling of this story, it finishes with a homily being read to the man who had now been cleansed of his demons, not oh. to mention cleansed of part of his library. <laughs> so as Zechariah makes very clear in this story, he didn't consider that he was harming the man by forcing him to burn these scrolls. He wasn't bullying him or acting cruelly towards him. In fact, the opposite was true. He was saving him by forcing him to burn heretical books. He had saved his soul. Do you remember in an earlier episode, we talked about Augustine Mm -hmm. and how Augustine said, it's all right to arrest people and torture them. (laughs) If you're saving their soul. Yes. Very convenient. Because Jesus blinded Paul 
in order to convert him so it's okay for us to put people on the rack and uh, pull their toenails out right. if we oh. do it out of love. Love, right? So it's the same thing with burning books. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, remember how Constantine himself ordered the works of the heretic Arius to be burned, and he Mm -hmm. contempted to death everyone who was found to be holding on to copies of Arius's books. This is before he also, before Constantine himself became an Arian. First of all, he was like, Arius, bad. Then a couple of weeks later, he was like, Changed my mind on that. Arius, good. Uh, they said, well, we've already burned all of his books. Shit. Sh- look, next Bugger. time I give an order, just... <laughs> Check with me. Just, there's got to be a cooling off period before we do these <laughs> a grace things. Period. A grace I'm, period. I'm very, I'm, I'm very spontaneous. You can't take everything I say so literally. Why? I'm just... Yeah. I. I think as I speak, I'm one of those people. I yeah. think out loud. I, I hadn't. I hadn't. I hadn't. Like they go, well, you're the emperor. You gotta. You can't. You've got to think before you say something. Well, that's just not how I that's like to how, roll. Exactly. That's not how I roll. And I'm getting older. Maybe my mind isn't as sharp. Fuck you. See, I didn't mean that. It just comes out sometimes. Donkey's balls. What? No. Sorry. I, it's a Tourette's. It's a form of don't. Tourette, shame me. Come fuck shit, bugger, balls. What? <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. uh, we know that that didn't work, a bit like the War on Drugs series, um, because 200 years later, half the empire is still Aryan, um, as we're going to see. But you can't blame him for trying. True. Now. We know that book burning was common with the Christians. Um, there's lots of uh, records of it in the, the the writings that have survived from this time. The fifth century, fifth century. What am I? A Kiwi now? Fish, fish and chops. Fifth century. The fifth century. Fifth century Syrian bishop Rabula. Ooh wrote, uh, search out the books of the heretics in every place and wherever you can, either bring them to us or burn them in the fire. Oh, my God. Sound a little Nazi there, but, you know. Where do you, th- where do you think the Nazis got it from, my friend? They're good, <laughs> cr- good Christians, the Nazis. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, search out the books of the heretics in every place, wherever you can, either yeah. bring them to us or burn them in the fire. <laughs> Fucking voices that you're doing. It's my, it's my gay, Nazi gay, accent. Gay Nazi. <coughs> I listen to my Just... wife when she talks in her sleep, oh. and it sounds a lot like that. Oh. <laughs> I ain't afraid of her. I'm, I'm not afraid of her. You're very afraid of her. Uh, a thousand years later, uh, mm-hmm. the Italian preacher Savonarola, who we will talk about in detail when we get into uh, the real Renaissance. Mm-hmm. He wanted the works of uh, our favourite Latin love poet, Catullus, <laughs> Pedicabo et Irumabo. How many people have bought their Pedicabo shirts? That's what I want to know. Or Everybody coffee mugs. on the tour. Right, right. I should be giving them out on the tour. Yeah. Shit, I was going to get boom, T-shirts made boom, up for the boom. tour. I didn't. I yeah. fuck it. Tell your assistant. Um, he wanted Catullus and Ovid to be banned. Uh, even a thousand years later, he was still Sorry. doing the whole, let's still, burn the books. Still pissed. 
He also wanted Tibullius, I don't know how to say his name, and I, I looked him up a little bit. He wrote poetry about a married woman that he was banging as her, her, her husband soldier was away, you know, defending the empire. And then later on, he had a relationship with a younger boy. He also wrote poetry about that. So, um, but yeah, I, th- these guys are just all over the place. If it's anything about, I guess, the senses, about lust, about love, about whatever, like you were saying earlier, just it, it's over the edge. It, if it If it takes away from you trying to find your way to God, it must not be ignored. You have to go further than that. It must be destroyed. It must be burned in the fire. Burn it! <laughs> another another preacher wrote, all of these shameful books should be let go because if you are Christians, you are obliged to burn them. Now, mm. Christian book burning goes back to the Bible. Uh, in Acts 19, we mm-hmm. see Paul doing a bunch of magic tricks and <laughs> casting out evil demons. And then uh, an evil demon beats up um, a bunch of guys in a city. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't know, as kind of retribution because Paul's been casting them out. They thought, we'll show him, we'll go beat up a bunch of guys. Um and and uh, Acts says, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Mm-hmm. So even in the Bible, it's talking about burning scrolls, burning books as a way of... I don't know, destroying non-Christian information to stop demons beating you up. Um, <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes. You would think, you would think that the demons would be sh- pissed off if you burnt the uh, sorcery scrolls and beat you up again. Exactly, beat you up <laughs> even harder. I don't understand the logic with this. <laughs> But then again, it's in the Bible, so maybe so I shouldn't must, be looking so hard it, for logic and consistency. Exactly, the Bible is a parable and not facts. But again, to make and again <clears throat> to point this out, the Christians weren't the first one to burn books. So we we talked about Augustus before this, and the Christians weren't theoretically going around burning entire libraries. They were after certain things, you know, anything that turns you away from God or from the Christian ways, but they had other weapons. They didn't have to destroy someone's entire library. Like you were saying earlier, they had censorship, they had intellectual hostility, and they had good old-fashioned Christian fear of being, I guess, ostracized or judged or punished or beaten or tortured or whatever. So they did have many weapons at their disposal to pursue going after the various forms of literature. And we see lots of examples of it um, in 367 CE. Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, wrote an Easter letter in which he demanded that the Egyptian monks destroy all unacceptable writings, except for those he specifically listed as acceptable. Um, And some of the, the books on that list are the present books in the New Testament. So they were the ones that Athanasius thought were acceptable. Everything else he gave specific orders they were to be destroyed. We also have examples of Cyril of Alexandria, our old friend, um, burning all the writings of Nestorius, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople. Wow. Uh, shortly after 435 CE, when Nestorius had been declared a heretic, 
there was a whole branch of Christianity that was big at the time called Nestorian Christianity that lasts for centuries. Um, so they're even burning Christian writings that they disagree with. In the late 6th century, we see Rakarad, the king of the Visigoths, who converted to Catholicism and ends up being the first Catholic king of Spain, he ordered that all Arian books should be collected and burned because he had been an Arian, changed his mind, burn them all, a bit like Constantine. <laughs> right. Um, so Christians, were, were, it, was a, it was a big part of their, their mindset during this period to destroy everything. Even though, as you said, they had a lot of other tools that, uh, um, that they could call upon, burning shit was a big part of it. Burn it, yeah. destroy it, get rid of it, um, because we don't even want it to be out there for people to, to read. Not that they, they can't read it and then decide for themselves. Right. It has to be destroyed. Now, Christians weren't the first people to burn books, obviously. Augustus did it. Diocletian did it. But when Christians did it, it was on a much larger scale and, and for very different reasons. Now, when Augustus had prophetic scrolls destroyed, um, we talked about this a little bit on our Augustus RIP series. Um, <laughs> it was uh, it was for a specific purpose. He didn't want people to be consulting the prophetic, the Sibylline scrolls. He wanted them to focus on just everything's going to be great. Stop worrying about all the bad shit that might happen tomorrow. Let's stabilize things. Just to, I'm here now. I'm here. Yeah. You, you don't need to worry about the future. Yeah. Big daddy. Big daddy's here. It's all going to be okay. <laughs> Diocletian had the books of the Manichaeans destroyed and maybe even some of the Christian stuff during the persecution, but it was targeted destruction. These guys, Manichaeans or the Christians, are fucking up the sacrifices Right. Pissing off the gods, we have to go and destroy their thing. And I guess the Christians could have seen it the same way. Like, well, everything that's not Christian is going to upset our god. So we have to destroy everything <laughs> that's either not Christian or isn't even an approved form of Christian writings. But before the Christians, we know that there were lots of competing philosophical schools. All were equally valid. All were equally arguable. There was never, you know, one philosophic school that that was able to destroy all of the books of the other philosophic schools. But for the first time, there is a single right, and everything else is wrong, and not just wrong, wrong, but has to be wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah, I wanted to touch upon that because the idea of burning books is inherently violent. Like you were saying a second ago, I mean, we are destroying, we're not just putting these away, we're not just locking these up, we are literally removing these from the face of the earth, we are destroying them. And just like you said, I mean, before there were various schools of uh, thought, of philosophies, they would write, they would debate, they would argue, sometimes you would win an argument, maybe you convert someone, maybe you don't, but the point is, you were free to debate each other, and it was okay, in fact, it was probably considered progress for various uh, philosophies to debate and try to find out, you know, which one as a as stronger merit, all that is, is is being taken away, all of it's being destroyed. It's God's way or no way, and all of that stuff that came before them, it, it, it's just not being tolerated anymore. And again, it, how do they justify this extremism? They are doing it to save the world, to save you, to bring you closer to God, because that is the only way you can have. 
I guess, eternal salvation once you leave this world. So again, even though what they're doing is extreme, they have an extreme answer. They have an extreme justification for what they're doing. Yeah, so their view is there's the Bible and there's Mm -hmm. our writings about the Bible. (laughs) And that's it. That's all you need. Everything else is just uh, a distraction. It's evil. Even further, it's bad. And, and yeah, and it puts you in grave danger, mm-hmm. not just to read, but to even have that stuff near you, close to you. Demons can come in just because those books are there. They're demon magnets. Like <laughs> like making a podcast makes you a chick magnet. Right. Uh, God, having demon scrolls. Yeah. <laughs> it's a demon magnet. <laughs> hey, I met my wife. Because See? I had a podcast. That's Boom. all That's all the evidence I need right there. And I got my wife not to leave me on more than one occasion uh, when I told her I was a podcaster, when I reminded her that I was a podcaster. Uh, so this stuff, this stuff is legit, people. Yeah, but the way you said it was, I've got nothing. I'm a podcaster. There's nothing. If you Shut leave up. me, Shut I'll have nothing. Gonna, I wasn't going to go into that much detail. Thank you, Cam. Now, one of the most famous assaults on books and thinkers took place in Antioch. At the end of the 4th century in Antioch, there was an accusation of treasonous divination that led to a full-scale purge of the intellectuals in Antioch. Holy shit. And we, we have a record of this by a contemporary who we've mentioned in other episodes, Ammianus Marcellinus, the non-Christian historian who happened to be in the city at the time. He says, racks were set up and leaden weights, cords and scourges put in readiness. The air was filled with the appalling yells of savage voices mixed with the clanking of chains as the torturers in the execution of their grim task shouted, hold, bind, tighten, more yet. Damn. Um, He says that there was a member of the nobility that had remarkable literary attainments, who was one of the first to be arrested and tortured. Uh, He was followed by a group of philosophers who were tortured, burned alive, and beheaded. In that order. (laughs) Because it would be evil to do it the other way around. (laughs) Messy. You're... You're you're depriving the person of the glory of being tortured and burned alive. And and I guess technically you can't burn someone alive if they've already been (laughs) beheaded. So you gotta get it right. I keep telling you this, Ray, when you're doing this following the first right first there comes the torturing, (laughs) then there comes the burning them alive, right, then the beheading. See that's what I that's what I if did wrong. The, okay. If you get the order wrong, you, no one's winning. <laughs> no one's winning out of that. No, but on a serious note, I guess during the torturing is when you get them to renounce whatever the fuck you want them to renounce and to take on whatever beliefs you currently have while you have a knife, you know, three inches into their gut or whatever. And then once they do that, that's good because you just save their soul. But, but they were defying the laws or they were defying God. So you just go ahead and finish them off and kill them, but get them to renounce their sins first, I think is, is the important part. And you chop their head off at the end. So they don't come back as part of the, <laughs> they, zombie. They, can't, 
They can't say backseats. Oh, right, right, right. But zombies, yeah. So uh, after that, uh, according to Marcellinus, there was uh, burnings of books in massive bonfires, which were used as post hoc justification for the slaughter. See, we had to kill them. They had books. He writes uh, that innumerable books and whole heaps of documents which had been routed out from various houses were piled up and burnt under the eyes of the judges. They were treated as forbidden texts to allay the indignation caused by the executions, though most of them were treatises on various liberal arts and on jurisprudence. Jeez. So just burn something for the sake of burning it to, to cover up what you just the 25 murders that you just committed of the city's elites. You got to burn something now. And, and everybody can probably imagine what's coming next. Preemptive burning of books. Yeah. So, you know, if they know that they're coming, they're going to torture you because you have books. People start setting fire to their own books <laughs> um, to to you know, get on the front foot. Um, I hope Americans are paying close attention to this because you know that's what's coming next with the Trump administration is, uh, you know, the persecution of intellectuals and the burnings of books. Um, uh, first there comes the Kristallnacht, which we're waiting for. <laughs> right. Um, then is the burning of the books. I think that's the uh, yeah. understood order. Hmm. Jeez. Yeah, so, so literally people uh, throughout the eastern provinces – they were burning their whole libraries just out of fear of the similar fate of what some of these other people went through. And again, like we were saying earlier, when you have a climate of fear of the unknown, and, and it seems like, okay, if you're doing something illegal or, or just immoral, whatever, the punishments are so severe for even minor infractions, you're just terrorized. It's just a form of terrorism, and you will do anything, say anything, uh, become anything to, to survive it. And one of the steps to that is literally taking out all of your books, putting them out in the yard, burning them so everybody can see, so hopefully you're cleared even before you're in- accused. And that, and that, of course, is, is just insanity. Amianus writes, uh, throughout the eastern provinces, whole libraries were burnt by their owners for fear of a similar fate. Such was the terror which seized all hearts. Jeez. Now, he wasn't the only guy who um, is reporting on this during this period. The pagan orator Libanius burned a huge number of his own works. He had been a friend of the Emperor Julian the Apostate and was the rhetoric teacher of John Chrysostom. <laughs> Even though Libanius wasn't a Christian, he had Christians as well as pagans take his classes. Um, uh, yeah, but even he was terrified that uh, they would torture him for being in possession of non-approved books. Speaking of John Chrysostom, there's a great story that he tells about one night when he was a young man, he mm-hmm. was walking through Antioch with a friend near a river and his friend noticed something floating in the water. Uh, according to Chrysostom, he thought it was a piece of cloth, but on coming closer, he saw it was a book and went Uh-oh. down to fish it out. He opened the book and saw magic signs oh, in fuck. it. Mm-hmm. Now, first question I have is how does he know they were magic signs? 
Uh-huh. I, would you know a magic sign if you saw one, Ray? I wouldn't. I don't even remember what Prince's name was when his name was a symbol and it was no longer a name. So, no, I would know magic signs. Yeah, I'd, I'd go, it's a sign. <laughs> Is it magic? Well, that depends on whether or not it works. Like, anyway. <laughs> so, Crisis Dom says, uh, the, the, at that time, a soldier came by. My friend put the book in his cloak and moved away, petrified with fear. For who would believe that we had found that book in the river and pulled it out when everybody was being arrested, even the least suspicious? We didn't dare throw it away for fear of being seen, and we were equally afraid to tear it up. I, I, I just have to ask the, the Captain Obvious question here. How does that not that incident not teach him later on when he's in a very powerful position. He's pre- if there was a couple of years where he's running the Eastern Empire, that the the stupidity of these laws, the extreme, the excessiveness, how does he not hearken back to these days and go, we've re- we really got to reel this stuff in because it is getting out of a hand. I can tell you this story one time when I was at a river. I mean, this is just insane. How does, how does he not learn from this moment, if it is true? Well, because uh, he's crazy. Uh, that shit crazy, right? <laughs> okay. You can't ex- Sorry. That's that's like saying, how come Donald Trump can't see, look, separating children from their parents is like one of the worst forms of evil. He right. can't. He, he can't see it. He's crazy. He's okay. You, you stop expecting so much out of the poor crazy guy. I, I, I apologize. Um, yeah, but Crisis Dome, as you say, went on to become one of the most important figures in the early church and a saint... Uh, we've talked about him a bit before. Big anti-Semite, hated the Jews, gave lots of speeches about how the Jews were beasts. Um, but at that point in time, just even being near a book right. that was uh, had magic signs in it terrified him. And, of course, he wrote later that God had delivered him by making the soldier not see that they had the book. Uh, so praise be, right? praise be. May the Lord open. <laughs> I'm doing the cross now. Now, for, every, for everybody who's listening right now, it, it can always get worse. History teaches us it can always get worse. And it's about to for these people. It gets to the point that if there's even unacceptable phrases in a book that is otherwise non-offending, that's enough to get your ass in trouble. So, um, so St. Jerome, who was a priest, a confessor, a theologian, a historian, uh, he was born on the border of Dalmatia and Pannonia, which we talked about in the Augustus series. He is best known for his translation of most of the Bible into Latin and his commentaries on the Gospels. And he, in his writings, would use quotes from secular literature which automatically ought to get his ass in trouble. So one day he's asked by a very aggressive Christian, and I think they're all aggressive, um, why he, he chose to constantly quote examples from secular literature and thus defile the whiteness, which I don't know what that means, of the church with the foulness of the heathenism. And Jerome backed his shit up. He said he had a good literary precedent for doing this because St. Paul himself, the motherfucker, had done it. But he was not being conquered by the heathens by using their quotes. He was doing the conquering, like David taking the sword from the enemy and using it against him, which to me 
is a very weak argument, but that's what he, that's how he addressed himself by saying, I am using their words against them. And I guess that was supposed to be clever, but I still don't see how he doesn't get in trouble with the church. St. Paul the motherfucker, is that what he called him? <laughs> that's right. St. <laughs> Paul MF. Yeah, yeah. Um. So we can see from some of these stories um, just how much fear people had, even about being seen with a book. Um, at some point in the 15th century, someone wrote a note in a manuscript in Vienna where they wrote, at this point in the book, there were 13 leaves containing works by the apostate Julian. The abbot of the monastery read them and realized that they were dangerous, so he threw them into the sea. Oh. So that's a thousand years later. Uh, Christians are still destroying <laughs> stuff that they don't like. Now, some classical literature was preserved by Christians, and and what mm-hmm. you'll sometimes hear and read, and and the reason I'm I'm maybe going on a bit long about with these stories is that for a lot of history, I mean, I'm talking the last couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. The, the the prevailing um, story that you would read, if you pull out a book on the Dark Ages from even a early part of the 20th century, um, you, you will read that Christians saved a lot of classical literature. They did their best to oh. save as much as it, as much of it as they could. But, you know, it was hard. They had things to do and uh, shows to watch. Right. Uh, it, was too, it was very hard, but they saved lots of it, and we should thank them for that. It's the same you'll often hear that, no, no, Christians didn't hate science. Christians invented science. Christians, all the great scientists were Christians. Okay. So there's this level of massive spin that was accepted. When, when you know, we know that during our 19th century and the 20th century, um, a lot of uh, uh, professors, people writing books on history, were Christians working at Christian colleges, universities, where mm-hmm. uh, 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 if you wanted to be successful and, and have a career and get tenure, you had to be a Christian more often than not. So this story has been perpetuated over the last couple of hundred years. We know now that that's not true. Yes, they, they preserved some, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, like, and we'll get into as we get uh, in, in the when we jump through to the 13th, 14th century. They preserved bits of Aristotle, bits of Cicero, bits of Plato, bits of some others, because they thought, well, we can kind of squeeze this in mm-hmm. to, to, to Christianity. And no doubt some was actually saved by some good guys. I'm sure there were some good guys, some good abbots, some good <laughs> right. monks. There's always good people that go, no, no, you know what? Just let's just 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 hide this one away down the back here. But um, the vast majority of it was deliberately either destroyed or not recopied. The vast majority, as I've said before, I think the estimate is that maybe one percent of ancient literature that existed at the time of Constantine, has survived. Um, for a whole bunch of reasons, but uh, one of them was definitely deliberate destruction or deliberate not recopying. Now, just to talk about that a little bit more, we've touched on this before, but to remind people, to, to survive, manuscripts needed to be recopied on a regular basis. 
Mm-hmm. And medieval monks, at a time when parchment was expensive, had to make decisions or their abbots had to make decisions. I mean, are we going to copy a, a good Christian book or are we going to copy an evil, heretical, uh, ancient philosopher? Well, uh, you know, when you've got to take, you know, these, these skins that are hard to produce or parchment, which is hard to produce as well, we don't have a, it's not like you can just go down to the supermarket and, and <laughs> buy a, a stack of five yeah. thousand sheets of paper, right? Yeah. Um, they, they had to make decisions about what they were going to copy and they valued one kind of writing over another. So they would often take pumice stones and um, use them to clean the ink off of parchment. Um, where there might have been something written by Catullus or, or Cicero or you know whoever, mm-hmm. they would they would they would clean the ink off it and then write over the top of it. Oh. Now there there is some evidence to suggest that in some cases whole groups of classical works were deliberately selected to be deleted mm. and overwritten in and around seven hundred CE. We know that because the the evidence of surviving manuscripts from these writers kind of disappears all of a sudden. Um, Pliny, Plautus, Cicero, Seneca, Virgil, Ovid, Livy, Lucan, and many, many more, they just kind of disappear all of a sudden. Um, about a hundred years or so after Christianity came to power with Constantine and then Theodosius, the transcription of these just kind of drops off. From 550 to 750, the numbers of those books that were copied just plummeted. Now, it's not that books stopped being produced altogether. Monasteries are still producing plenty of religious books. Mm. Bible after Bible, Bible copies of Augustine, etc., um, huge amounts of those are being churned out, but uh, copies of these books, the, the 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 classical authors, just drop off around about this time. Um, yeah, so it looks like there was a deliberate decision made at this point. No, we're not we're not copying those anymore. <laughs> and and of course, as you can imagine, some of the some of the Christians who were really really into this, like John Chrysostom, um, we're, we're getting off on it. He wrote, of the Greeks, of the Greeks have all perished and are obliter- obliterated. So again, he's, he's, he's very excited about this. Where is Plato? Nowhere. Where is Paul? In the mouths of all. So he's saying that stuff like Plato was gone, other stuff like Catullus is gone, but the word of the word of the Bible, the writers, the, the people covered in that, everybody knows these stories, everybody is reading the Bible or being exposed to the Bible. We are winning this, for lack of better word, war. Yeah, there's a fifth century bishop of Cyrus, a guy called Theodoret, who was a pretty influential theologian. He wrote about the decline of Greek literature. Those elaborately decorated fables have been utterly banned. Who is today's head of the Stoic heresy? Who is safeguarding the teachings of the peripatetics? So uh, he was happy about the fact that it was all gone. All the ancient philosophies, the schools uh, had been destroyed. He concluded his sermon by saying, The whole earth under the sun has been filled with sermons. 
I, I just have to ask, I mean, and I know this is splitting hairs, but couldn't I be a Christian and a philosopher? If I have a certain philosophy about Stoicism or whatever, God created the world, the only way to heaven is through God, whatever, that's fine. But at the same time, I'm going to not take certain things pleasures of the flesh or laziness or whatever seriously and I'm going to be I'm going to be austere I'm I'm going to be Spartan or whatever is isn't there a way to for the two thinkings to coexist I mean why does everything else have to be wiped out how come there's no tolerance for I mean d- does Christianity have to be a philosophy can I have a certain code of living and still be a Christian and they're not the same thing. I'm just trying to really understand what these, what, what it seems like the church leaders are afraid of something. I, I don't know. It just, it just seems that they're acting on fear and panic as opposed to truly wanting to help people. Well, the word philosophy, philo is uh, the study, sophia was truth. So it was the study of the truth philosophy. The Christians are like, well, we don't need to study the truth. We know the truth. The truth is right. in the Bible. The truth is Jesus. Um, it's no point. We don't need to look outside of that, Ray. We've got it all. It's all here. It's right We've here. We've got it all. One-stop that's why, shopping. Yeah, that's why Jesus okay. uh, fake died for our <laughs> sins. Uh, is, well, he didn't really die because he came back. So it's fake, right. fake dying. It's a fake out. Fake news. Um, Major, look, you dirty chook, is what he said uh, <laughs> when he came back. So, uh-huh. so um, even though there's parts of the Bible that that are they're conflicting or confusing, I should ignore them. Don't read the dirty bits. But other than that, just the Bible is the answer yeah. to everything. Okay. All right. Hmm. Makes sense. Augustine uh, also wrote about the decline of the old classic uh, schools of Athens. He said that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophies had been suppressed. Mm. Actually, the the word that he used, they'd been suppressed. The the opinions of those schools uh, have been so completely eradicated and suppressed that if any school of error now emerged against the truth that is, against the Church of Christ, it would not dare to step forth for battle if it were not covered under the Christian name. Wow. Brag much? Yeah. Uh, Now, in terms of what survived, it's estimated that less than 10% of all classical literature has survived into the modern era. But for the Latin stuff, the stuff that was written, you know, in the heyday of Rome, it's even Mm -hmm. worse it's estimated that only one hundredth of all Latin literature remains. And why? Well, we're going to get into that in the next couple of episodes. We're going to talk about the uh, some of the things that led to the destruction of uh, the Western Roman Empire and, and with it Latin, the language of the Romans. Um. So that's what we're going to do. The next couple of episodes, we're going to talk about sort of the Goths and uh, the Ostrogoths and plagues and other things that led to the Dark Ages. And then we're going to wrap up the first phase of the series and get into the second phase, which will be the Renaissance as such. Um 
so I don't know. Just to wrap up this this episode, I guess I'd say that with those sorts of numbers, one one hundredth of Latin literature surviving, less than ten percent of all classical literature surviving. If this is preservation, as it's often claimed to be, then it was astonishingly incompetent. Right. But if it was censorship, it was brilliantly effective. Right. Come on. Come on. Now, um, I don't have any new reviews, uh, Ray. We've got no Come new on. reviews. Oh. Come on. What is wrong with you people? Um, so far, over the course of this series, we've done well, 18, 19 episodes, 19 episodes today, uh, 15 reviews is all we've got. Uh, not even one an episode. So come on, folks, get up to iTunes, leave us a review, get yourself a Renaissance mug. If 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 you need photos of Ray and the goat in order to motivate, just tell me. I've got plenty I, of those. I can me send too. Those through. Yeah, Ray'll get some new ones taken uh, just for you. <laughs> I got to go rent a goat now. All right. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let me just thank some new sub- subscribers then, seeing as we don't have any reviews. <sighs> You're right there? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be uh, me and the goat at the same time. Please continue. All right. I want to thank the following people for subscribing to the show. Chris Keith, Dave Shafey. Dave's going to be with us uh, nice. in, in Europe. You'll be able to thank him in person with a bit of a kiss on the cheek. Mm-hmm. Kevin mm-hmm. Levitt, Joe Repka, Lily Young, Kevin Cunningham, Andrew Minor, Callum McEachran, Thor Andre Vickholm, nice. Anton Harms, Kelsey Joyce, Darby De Christopher, Andrew Hung, Ellie Picone, Neil Hill, Jacob Brinkman, Nick Jorce, Stephanie Therin, Nicholas Stark. My old buddy, Laurel Cherkos, Dace Cavallo, Matthew Paul, Scott Banks. They are our recent subscribers in the last month. So thank you, folks. Welcome to the series. Thank, thank you. you for your support. Much appreciated. And with that, uh, we will be back next week. Even though Ray and I will be in Paris. Nice. No? Hold on. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. this time next week we won't have left. But the but but you know soon uh, uh, after very soon after that we we will still put out shows for, of this one anyway. This is why we're doing a bunch of them today. Right? I don't know why I bothered to tell them that. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, and we'll and we'll put out in Paris too. You'll put out in Paris. Yeah, I'll put out. Oh, you'll, be, you'll be. Yeah, it's because my mum's going to be there. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. What we've got here is... Failure to communicate.